0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Midtown. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, Life as Gift, Not Gain.
1: Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of one another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in pursuit of the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Well, peace be with you. All right. Well, happy Father's Day uh, to all of our fathers. Uh, we are uh, thankful that you have chosen to uh, spend your Father's Day morning with us. And uh, to uh, everyone here, we know that Father's Day is uh, quite a complex day uh, for many. Uh, it's not simply a separate celebration, but... Uh, For some, it's also a lament. It's a reminder that life under the sun is full of brokenness. It's full of regrets, longings, and frustrations. And while we uh, have life in the Son of God, we are uh, constantly uh, reminded that God doesn't erase our pain on this side of heaven. But we're also reminded that we are part of the family of God. We're reminded that life in the Son means that we are redeemed, that we are fully loved, that we are seen, that we are accepted, and that we have a home in Him. Let's pray and we're going to dive into today's text. Uh, Father, I pray uh, first a prayer of thanksgiving because uh, you are good. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful and true. We thank you that you are a God who delights in us as your children and who invite us into your family, who relate to us as our Father. I pray, Father God, that you would father us and shepherd us and lead us into green pastures and a place of rest in the depths of our soul. Pray that you will capture our attention uh, so that we, Lord, may abide in your word together right now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, uh, today's text is a, a really important one. And throughout the text, the short text from verses one through six, we see a, a theme running through of both work and justice. Last week we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter three, uh, verse one through fifteen, and the theme of Ecclesiastes three, one through fifteen was uh that God sovereignly appoints the times and he makes everything beautiful in its season or in its own timing. And then after verse 16, we see that the rest of chapter 6, the author of Ecclesiastes, the sage, the preacher, uh, points us to uh, 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 observing uh, the judgment of the wicked. And so today, as we look at verses 1 through 6, I want us to, to notice this theme that he draws us to, which is his work and justice. And I think that this is an important thing for everyone here, no matter who you are or where you're from, but I I do want to apply this in very specific ways uh, to fathers today because I believe that there's a a powerful message uh, for them today. I believe that we can benefit from the sages' reflections on all fronts as we live in life under the sun, but also in a world that is, as we call it, a dog-eat, dog-world. Have you ever paused to think about the fact that one of the ways in which we relate to people, especially celebrities, is through the term of net worth? We look at the worth of a human being based upon what they have netted, based upon what is in one's bank account. And that makes for not only an unhealthy soul, but it also makes for an unhealthy culture. Basing people's worth on what they have in their bank account sets people up um, to not know who they are um, and how God has made them. And in today's text, the The sage is going to show us what this type of culture can produce. It can produce several postures. I want you to look at verse four and verse five, as well as verse six, and we'll see uh, this unhealthy posture that can be created when we limit people to or even limit ourselves to uh, what we own or what we have. In verse four, the sage writes, I saw that all labor... And all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of wind. This little. A proverb in verse five really caught my attention. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of win. The sage here makes a powerful observation that skillful work under the sun is often motivated, he says, by jealousy of another. In other words, a heart that is seeking validation and fulfillment, a heart that is jealous because someone else is perceived to be better than them. Then, in two short verses, the sage reveals that there essentially is three postures or three ways to live. In the CSV, it says, you can live with a fool folds his arms, NIV and other translation says folds his hands. So I'm going to use that uh, kind of analogy or, or word picture. Um, there's three ways to live. There's a way to live with folded hands as one, with two open hands as two, or with one handful with rest. Somebody say that with me. Say folded hands, two open hands, or one handful with rest. The first two postures, folded hands and two un- open hands, are unhealthy postures. And they are postures that the world, Satan, and our flesh would want us to pursue. And even today, as we think about Father's Day, I really want fathers here uh, to really think about uh, how you are shaping your sons. Um, and even if you're not a father, think about the state of your own heart and the posture of it. Um, Are you living with folded hands, two open hands, or one handful with rest? Verse five, the food folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The folded hands posture is the person who for a variety of reasons looks at the world and the pressure uh, to produce or to make it in the world. And instead, perhaps they go the opposite direction. than the sage went or then other people go instead of working to gain all that they can and to live for their own glory or vanity. They actually don't work or they shun work. They barely work. The sage argues that few fools have idle hands. And these idle hands lead them to their ruin. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul even warns the church against people who don't work, who fold their hands, who lives to mooch off of others. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, it says, When we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. But we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Paul had bars. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and to provide for themselves. And Paul here is, is, is calling people to, to work hard and not to be idle not to be beat dads. Work is important. God created us to take care of his creation and to rule over it with dominion. He gave us tasks before the fall. He gave us a creation mandate to cultivate beauty. Work builds character. Work keeps our minds away from idleness, keeps us away from being busybodies, gossips, meddlers, Work is a way to serve the common good. If a person is is physically and mentally capable of working, the Bible teaches that they should. To not work, to be lazy, is to not fear God. And this is the type of culture that a dog dog world can actually produce. It can produce a lazy person who compares themselves to others or... um, and as a result, they kind of give up on life and they live in a very nihilistic uh, me first. Everyone serve me. I'm not going to work uh, for what I can get type of mentality. But the second person is the person I really want to focus on. And this is the person who lives with two hands open. This person believes that life is about making it to the top of the ladder and gains, and, and to gain everything under the sun that you can. The ultimate motivation of the two hands open person, the sage says, um, is, is to, to gain all that they can, to gain all that they can. Look at this. The, the two handfuls with effort, he says, is a pursuit of the wind. And the sage has been teaching us throughout Ecclesiastes, essentially, that this is the way that he has lived. And he has realized that this way of life is havel. It's empty, it's vain, it's smoke, it doesn't please you. The preacher has learned his lesson and he has dumped these vain pursuits. And he is now inviting the reader to dump their vain pursuits as well. They're grasping for vanity. They're grasping for more stuff and more possession. The sage has broken up with this type of living. As one team of philosophers wrote, uh, you thought that I'd be weak without you, but I'm stronger. You thought that I'd be broke without you, but I'm richer. You thought that I'd be sad without you, but I laugh harder. Amen, somebody. I wonder who wrote that Destiny's Child. Amen. The sage is saying, listen, I thought that wealth was going to actually make me richer or stronger or better. And all it did was leave me empty. The preacher has found that true life is experienced when we enjoy God's good gifts with him, not apart from him. True life is found not in in wealth, but is found in abiding in Christ and knowing him. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16 says it this way, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great Treasure with turmoil. Proverbs 16a says, better a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. So here's the point that Solomon is making. And it's simple, but follow me because it's quite profound. Behind injustice and oppression sits people who lived with the two hands open posture. Behind oppression and injustice sits persons who have decided to live their life for their own advantage, grasping and reaching for everything for themselves, choosing to pursue power and wealth over life with God. Behind injustice and oppression are men and women who want to to ball out. Because they think that gadgets, toys, and stuff divine, define their worth. Now listen, there's a place for gadgets. There's a place for toys. There's a place for, for fun and relaxation. In fact, the preacher has been telling us all along that in light of the fall, in light of life under the sun, we ought to eat. We ought to play. We ought to enjoy ourselves but we do so realizing that everything that we enjoy is a gift from God and it is meant to be enjoyed in the presence of God and with God. This two hands open mindset is a posture that perpetuates brokenness. It's a posture that perpetuates sickness. It's a posture that perpetuates oppression. Behind all oppression sit men and women who live with both of their hands open, seeking to grasp and to take for themselves with their own comfort and own glory at the center of it. This two-hands posture, mindset is the posture of Hitler and the cause of the Holocaust of Europe. This two-hands open mindset is what was behind Saddam Hussein and the gassing of his own people. This two-hand open posture is what was behind the transatlantic slave trade, chattel slavery, Jim Crow, and that's why there's a need for a celebration like Juneteenth. This two-hands open mindset is why the current genocide of the Uyghurs, the Turkey-speaking minority group, who is being experienced in genocide at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. This two-hand open posture is the posture that uh, is behind every global brutality, gang wars, Wall Street crimes, tax evasion, privatized prisons. This two-hand open posture is the type of heart that leads to The marginalization of people, the pimping of women and others. The two hands open posture is a posture that unfortunately is often found in the church of Jesus Christ. A church that often wants to live at its absolute max comfortability and finds itself apathetic to the tears of the oppressed. Solomon is inviting us into a way of living that produces fulfillment, that produces character, that produces peace. The sage has given us an, an opportunity to look and to see with the heart of God, people who were created in the image of God. If we go up to chapter four, just before he tells this profound short proverb, we read these words again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. Those are powerful words, and they're actually words by a man who at one point of his life was oppressing others. And he's saying that the the oppressed are are those who are, are not getting their just due as image bearers of God. So often we don't want to look at the oppressed. And for some of us to look at the oppressed, it causes us anxiety because we feel overwhelmed and we begin to ask the question, well, what can I do? And others of us, it causes fear because we know that to look at the pain of the oppressed Uh, will will cause us to sit with the reality that, that we should be doing something. And speaking up for the oppressed means that we ourselves might lose social capital. For others of us, looking at the oppressed brings guilt because we believe that somehow we are complicit in it or we are afraid to open the door. But scripture constantly calls us to look at the oppressed and to see their pain. And the sage wants us to see that the, the cause of this oppression is those who are in places and positions of power who create these situations or who maintain them for their own benefit. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit Of the wind. Solomon opens his eyes and he sees the oppressed and listen to what he says in verse two. So I commanded commended the dead who have already died more than the living, who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun, Solomon laments as he looks at the oppressed and he says, better is the person who is not yet born for if you saw what my eyes saw you would conclude the same and so what I want to call our attention to for the, the remainder of this sermon is simple I want us to to look at this third posture, which is a posture that is saying is a posture of one handful with rest. He says, "Better one handful with rest. And here's the invitation today. The invitation is simply to focus your attention on the kingdom of God while you enjoy your work and stand up for the oppressed. And stand up for the oppressed. In verse 22, uh, just before, uh, Solomon uh, goes into chapter four. He says this, I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his re- reward for who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies. And so all throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon is calling people to enjoy their work as a gift from God. But in chapter four, as we continue, we also see him calling us to stand up for the oppressed or to see the oppressed. And as fathers today, I want to quickly challenge you and encourage you. I want to quickly challenge you and encourage you as Christian men to disciple your sons in such a way that they are uh, hard workers um, who, who stand up for those who are in need. One of the best gifts that we as men can give our sons is the gift of of working hard and putting God at the center of our work, not making as much money as we can, um, not climbing uh, the corporate ladder so that we can have as much as we can, but the best gift that we can give our sons is is a healthy work ethic that works as unto the Lord and that seeks to steward all that he has given us for his kingdom and that stands up for people who are oppressed. In the New Testament, Jesus models this way of living, and I want to call you to this. Focus your attention on the kingdom of God while you enjoy your work. Jesus models this way of living, a way that was God-centered, that wasn't seeking wealth or gain for his own glory. And that was centered on comforting the oppressed. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus showed us how to live. He showed us that we live by abiding in the love of our father, by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus calls us to focus our attention on his kingdom in Matthew six thirty three. but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. And the context of that is food, drink, and clothes. He says, make God in the pursuit of God and his kingdom and his justice, your focus and everything else will be taken care of. And he didn't just teach us, he showed us. In Matthew chapter four, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, he said, if you would just fall down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. And the devil who is the prince of the power of the world and who is in cahoots with, with, with men who are not redeemed in the world, um, really is in in charge of the world, in control of the world. And he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, which was a real temptation. He offered Jesus a crown without a cross. And he offers us the same every day. He tempts me every day to live with both hands open. He tempts us every day in small ways to seek power to seek comfort, to seek wealth in such a way as Christians where, where God may be present, but he is, he is on the margins, he is on the peripheral. But Jesus invites us to put our attention on his kingdom and to put God at the center. Jesus invites us to cultivate a heart of contentment by guarding our heart against greed. Least we end up being the people or being part of systems that take advantage of others. Thereby, we become a part of the problem. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. He says, don't take money away from anyone by force or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. He said that to uh, the, the Roman soldiers. Call them to repent, to cultivate a heart of contentment, not one that has both hands open, that's grasping. And John the Baptist did the same. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus warned, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Paul adds in 1 Timothy chapter six, verse six through eight, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these things. As Christians and as men who are raising up sons, we have to teach them in a dog-eat-dog world to pursue a career, to pursue a path that maximizes our gifts, but not so that we can live at maximum comfort, but so that we can store whatever God gives us to the building up of his kingdom and leverage it for those who are oppressed and in need. Recognizing that our, our reward is stored up for us in heaven. Yes, a wise man, the proverb says, leaves wealth for his children and his grandchildren. And yes, a man who is is working hard uh, should provide for his family and, and, and should eat and enjoy the fruit of his labor. But we also must make sure that we are intentional about being about our father's business. And we ought to guard our hearts against greed and cultivate a heart of contentment. May the Lord raise up a church who can say like the psalmist in Psalm 73 and 25, after reflecting on the, the wicked and after saying, I almost stumbled, I almost fell because my eyes were on the godless and how much they gained. He said, I was envious of, of, of the way that they lived. And then by the end of the psalm, once he set his attention on God, he concluded this way, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so the psalmist halfway through the psalm looks at those who are evil. And, and yes, that they are living with two hands open and they have all of these, these things. But he looks at how empty they are and how their way ends to ruin. And he sets his attention on God and he says, God, you are most beautiful. You are who satisfied me. You are my heart's strength and my portion forever. And this doesn't go for people who are wealthy. What you do with the little bit that you have now is a, is a window into your heart. He who is faithful with little is faithful with much. A heart of generosity is a heart of generosity, no matter how much you have. Second, I want to encourage you to to stand up for the oppressed. We do this knowing that Jesus stood up for the oppressed. He says the greatest... Commandment is to love God with your heart, soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what does it look like to stand up for the oppressed here in chapter four? Verse one, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. And that's that's where wisdom comes. Wisdom comes by slowing down and observing. He goes on and says, look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. But because Christ has redeemed us, they should have people to comfort them. Jesus says, greater works will you do as I go to the Father. Because there, there are more little Christs in the earth than Jesus, who when he was on the earth was limited to, to one body and one space. As says, greater works will you do. Greater works will the church do because we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And So how do we comfort the oppressed? Well, we comfort them by looking at them. We comfort them by slowing down and looking for them. It is very easy for us to, to not look for the oppressed. It's very easy for us to stay in our bubbles and to only be uh, concerned with convenient causes. But we have to slow down and we have to observe. We stand up for the oppressed and we comfort them through prayer by praying for them. We pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, we stand up for the oppressed by lamenting with them, by being present to them, and by weeping. We stand up for the oppressed by drawing near to them. As John Perkins says, justice cannot be achieved from long distance. We befriend people who are marginalized and persecuted and broken we stand up for the oppressed by using our resources for them by leveraging our privileges for the underprivileged by leveraging our the fact that we may be franchised for the disenfranchised by leveraging what we have for the marginalized Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, "'Speak up for those who have no voice "'for the justice of all who are disposed.'" Speak up. "'Judge righteously "'and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy.'" One of the best gifts that a father can give his son as a Christian Is to disciple him to look like Jesus. And how did Jesus look? If Jesus was to show up today, would we, as the Western American church, recognize him? Would we want to be near him? Would we walk with him? Jesus invites us into a way of living that blesses us. Because as we see the oppressed, we mourn. And when we mourn, we experience the comfort of the God of all comfort. When we allow our hearts to be broken and to become tender by focusing our attention on him, the one who chose a life of poverty. Listen, Jesus could have had a Joel Osteen type ministry. Jesus could have balled out. I mean, Jesus was having church services and folk who were crippled was walking away healed. And it wasn't like a Billy. Uh, what's not Billy Graham? Billy Graham was a legit ministry. I ain't the one. I hate the one. No emails. Like Billy was doing his thing. What's the Benny Hinn, that's the brother. Like Jesus had a legit ministry that was better than Benny Hinn and he could have profited from it for himself. And yet he says birds have nests and fox have holes but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And I don't believe he was calling us to poverty and to live as wanderers Or as those who were poor, Jesus knew that his time was near. And so the best investment for him was not to buy a plot of land. But I believe he's calling us and inviting us into a way of living that is shrewd. And that leverages all that we have for the kingdom. Think about how he spent this time. And who he spent this time with. Spent his time with those who were disenfranchised so much to the point that the Pharisees called him a drunkard because he was hanging out with people who were broken and who, who depended on alcohol to get them through, to numb their pain as a result of life under the sun. It's important that, to remember that we don't do this We don't adapt and and pursue life with an open hand and rest, meaning that our hearts are not constantly toiling for more power and more stuff, but we're working and resting and leaving the results up to God. We don't do this to be loved by the Father. We do this because we are loved by the Father. We don't do this to be saved We do this because he has saved us. We don't do this to prove something to ourselves or to anyone else. We do this because the father proved to us that we matter, that we're beautiful. We do this remembering that Satan worked so that we would not get our do as image bearers of God. We do this to remember that Satan worked so that we could be separated from the Father's love and affirmation. We do this from a place that allows us to remember that Satan did not want us to know the Father's joy, that we were oppressed and needy, crushed under the weight of sin. But God, being rich in mercy, Delivered us by not giving us what we would do, which was wrath and eternal separation from him, but instead met us with grace and mercy and met our deepest need. Martin Luther King Jr. has a powerful quote where he says this in reflecting on evil and oppression. He says evil may shape events, that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but that same Christ will rise up and split history into AD and B C so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Ecclesiastes 3:15 through 16. The sage says this, I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. Justice may seem far away and it may seem impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the moral, the arc of the moral universe, though it is long, it bends towards justice. Justice may seem long, but justice is coming. And one of the best gifts that we can give our kids, and one of the best gifts that we can give the next generation, is the ability. To pursue the way of Jesus so that when the just one comes, their heart leaps with joy and not with terror. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.